TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Good morning, it's Sunday Take. I'm Blaise Olson, your host here on January 23rd, 2022. We are exactly eight days away from the launch of the Minnesota legislative session. And this past week, Governor Walls introduced his budget, supplemental budget, based on the $7.7 billion surplus. And he coined a new term called Walls checks. In the spirit of Trump checks and Jesse checks, Governor Walls says, you know, about 2.7 million Minnesotans should get money back from this budget surplus. He also talked about other priorities from childcare to to broadband uh, and many other issues. So just know that uh, when we learned about the surplus in December, we said we're going to talk about the surplus no matter what through November because it's an election year. And it's very clear that this Walls budget is designed for him to be popular. Uh, He reaches into upper middle class, middle class families for this rebate. Uh, He repays unemployment insurance, uh, which helps the business community. He had business leaders touting uh, the uh, the budget. Uh, Charlie Weaver from the Business Partnership. It's not often that he would praise a Democratic governor, uh, but he did in this uh, press release. So, uh, you know, almost a month done with 2022, and we've had plenty of curveballs. And the other dynamics are that Governor Walls also released his bonding bill. So we're going to talk bonding with Fu Lee. He's the chair of the House Capital Investment Committee. He'll be on this program. We also sit down and we're going to talk to Paul Gazelka. Uh, and, you know, he is kind of the mainstay in this Republican governor's race. Where is he at? Uh, where does he stand and can he win? Uh, and first up, we're going to talk to Brian McClung. He's not affiliated with any of the Republican governor's candidates. We're a week away from caucuses. Where does he think the race stands? Uh, and he's worked for governors, including Governor Pawlenty, uh, and gone through this budget cycle. And so what does he think of the Walls budget and what does it do to Republicans? It's been a long week. Uh, it's cold out. Grab a cup of coffee and just know that if it's Sunday, it's Sunday take, and we'll have all the news here coming up in the next hour. I'm Blaise Olson. We'll be right back. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network.
Welcome back to News Talk 830 WCCO. This is Boy Solson on Sunday Take. Joining me for this first segment uh, this Sunday morning is Brian McClung. Brian's a longtime uh, public affairs professional. Uh, Park Street Public is his firm. You would know him. He used to be on these airwaves as uh, the sidekick to Governor Pawlenty. Uh, back in his years, he worked for Governor Pawlenty, uh, and uh, he's a Republican who follows races, but doesn't have uh, doesn't have a candidate in the Republican governor's race. So, Brian, I figured you were one of the only Republicans that I could talk to was be somewhat, you know, open minded about this race because everybody's kind of snapped up as the race gets crowded. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, happy to do it. Thanks, boys. Brian, let's talk about the Republican governor's race. We're a little uh, away, more than a week away from caucuses. It kind of kicks off this process. Um, Kendall Qualls gets in last week. Michelle Benson wins the Wright County straw poll this week. Where do you think this race is at? And, and you know, how much road is there to go before the state convention? And how many times can things change? Well, I think this is a wide open gubernatorial contest on the Republican side right now. Uh, like you said, you, you know, Kendall Qualls is uh, the late entrant. Uh, but he's got a, a lot of support and a lot of interest. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of Republican delegates, many know him from his run in the third congressional district uh, last time around. Uh, and also from the activism and he's been out, you know, on the speaking circuit and with, uh, you know, Take Charge Minnesota, uh, keeping his message out there. And I think he presents as an outsider, as, you know, a businessman, somebody with a military background. But he doesn't have an electoral record, which can sometimes be a benefit. I think he's going to try to be in the kind of Glenn Youngkin lane in this race. As you mentioned, Michelle Benson won in Wright County. Wright County maybe has the most delegates of any of the BPOUs, uh, the local units that send delegates to the Republican convention. So that's a really important part of the state. And she's really been impressing people. Uh, Senator Paul Gazelka has won the most uh, straw poll contests out there. Uh, he seems to have a strong base of support and some momentum with the party activists. Uh, and Scott Jensen uh, was the person with the early momentum who, who built up a big fundraising lead and a lot of support from activists early on. Uh, you know, that's sometimes a challenge to maintain that advantage when you have the head start. Uh, but I think he's got a lot of people that are with him. So it is really an interesting race. Uh, and at this point, uh, anybody could uh, win the Republican endorsement. It may seem a little granular, Brian, but talk about the delegate pool that they're fighting over. Jensen talks about bringing new people to the process. That's talked about a lot. But at the end of the day, I've never seen anybody bring a whole bunch of new people to a caucus system, which, as you and I know, takes a lot of patience and a certain amount of uh, understanding and willpower to, to get to the state convention. Is it still the same basic pool of people or values or top issues that it was 12, you know, 16 years ago? Or has it shifted? It's the same crew, and it, I don't really see that changing. I would anticipate that 75 to 80% of precinct caucus attendees will be returning precinct caucus attendees. And so there's certainly some new group, right, 20 to 25%. If you can absolutely lock in a big chunk of those new people, that does make a difference. 
but it is really hard to get new people to show up. It is a really arcane system, you know, to have people on a, the first Tuesday in February, go to a school or a gym or a, you know, a church or a community center and sit around with their neighbors and talk about, you know, platform planks and all of this. I mean, I've been, you know, going to these precinct caucuses for, I don't know, about 25 years now, and it's still weird to me. Uh, and I'm used to it. So I think that, you know, while Scott Jensen, I think, does appeal and bring in um, some new new blood and some new potential interest, uh, it's really hard. And you to organize and get new people to attend precinct caucuses across the entire state uh, is extraordinarily difficult. One of the other dynamics that Republicans have had to deal with is obviously the personality of Trump and the the dynamics that kind of pro-Trump people have brought to the party. There's a group called Action for Liberty. They uh, seem to be supporting Dr. Neil Shaw. Um, is, is Trump a factor with the delegates as much as he's a factor on cable news uh, and the, the big deal people make about it? Because a lot of these delegates have been around before Trump, right? Yes, a lot of them have been around before Trump. I do think, though, that the issues that people talk about and with what they're interested in uh, is impacted by Donald Trump. And when he highlights a topic and when he drives conversation around a set of issues, I think that does then, you know, that bleeds into the media coverage that delegates are seeing and hearing uh, and it impacts what matters to them. And so as a result, it impacts what the you know candidates for governor are going to talk about. Um, so I do think that there is an influence there. Uh, and, you know, the vast majority of delegates um, like and support Donald Trump. And so they're going to want to see that from these candidates for governor. So there is that, you know, that line that that candidates, I think, are trying to walk like Glenn Youngkin did in Virginia, which is to keep the Trump base energized and on board, uh, but also do that in a way that doesn't drive away you know, suburban voters, voters who are uh, concerned about education and, and some other issues. So that uh, that is really hard to do. It takes a lot of political skill. Uh, and we'll see, you know, to be it's one thing to be successful in May and win the Republican endorsement. Uh, it's another thing entirely to be successful in November and actually beat an incumbent Democrat governor. Um, so, you know, to accomplish both of those things, you're really going to have to be pretty nimble. My guest is Brian McClung. He's a Republican. He's the owner and principal at Park Street Public, a public affairs firm. He and I have known each other uh, at least two decades or more. Uh, I was just doing the math on my first precinct caucus. It was uh, extra credit in ninth grade civics, Brian. So that, that <laughs> would tell you that that would be about 35 years ago now. So um, it, let's shift to Governor Walls' budget. You worked for Governor Pawlenty. Uh, you guys had to put out budgets. You had to put out supplemental budgets. You had to do it in an election year. Um, Governor Pawlenty is the last Republican elected statewide. Uh, talk about what you saw in Walls's budget this week and what it means as we go into the legislative session first. 
Yeah, I think for starters, a couple of things that were interesting. Uh, he came out with this budget earlier than I would have anticipated. I think he made it clear that he wanted to get in front of the conversation at the Capitol, uh, you know, releasing his budget a little more than 10 days before the start of the legislative session. Uh, so that was interesting to me. I also think that, you know, he did a couple of, of smart things here. Number one, coming out with a proposal to pay off the unemployment insurance debt and to restore that UI fund uh, almost to pre-pandemic levels was really smart. I mean, that really helps him take that off the table. That was a major Republican and business community talking point for the last several months. Uh, and, you know, Minnesota is one of only nine states that didn't use federal money to pay off their UI uh, debt to the federal government. And so we were falling behind in that regard. And it's something that small businesses see directly. You get that notice about your UI going up. Um, so that was a smart move by Walls to take that away because that was a really easy thing for Republicans to go after him on. And then number two on this idea of rebate checks, Walls checks uh, in yeah. their own press release, which is, I did some pretty bold things as Palenti's uh, press secretary <laughs> and director of communications, but I'm not sure I named anything after my boss. Yeah, no, uh, I, I I noticed that too. As two PR guys, trust, trust us, we noticed that you <laughs> self-brand the check you're going to send out. That's a, that's a bold move. Uh, not very Minnesotan, let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, they're, again, they're staking a claim, though. They go early on the budget. They come out ahead of the legislature. They call it what they want it to be called. They, you know, they don't, the, you know, back in the Ventura days, the press called it Jesse Checks. Not even Je Jesse Ventura, who is the master of self-promotion, didn't even go there. Um, but, but that said, I do think that Walls made a, a pretty smart move there. Now, Republicans, I think rightfully so, are saying, look, we need permanent tax relief. So a big chunk of this $7.7 .7 billion surplus, around $5 billion of it, is sustainable. It is a surplus that is projected into the future. And so lots of times we get a surplus, you know, politicians talk about one-time uses because we don't want to dig a hole. Well, in this case, a lot of that surplus they're seeing is recurring. And so I think we do need long-term tax relief. And I think that is a smart argument. And, and from a policy perspective, I think it's smart. But Governor Walls, by coming out with a, you know, give it back plan or give back some of it plan, uh, you know, kind of blunts that criticism and uh, has his own approach and guarantees that we're going to be talking about this. You can't, this is a talker. People will talk about, wow, I'm going to get a check. It's a pretty small check in the grand scheme of things, 175 bucks a person, 350 bucks a couple with inflation going up that, you know, buys you maybe a nice dinner somewhere. Right. But that said, uh, it's still getting a check. The idea of getting a check from government uh, is something people will talk about. And so I think that was an interesting play on his part as well. Yeah, no, I think that is, I, I, I had to go back and see what I wrote in December about the surplus when it came out. And I said, we're going to be talking about the surplus till election day, no matter what, because either they'll resolve it or they'll argue over it. Um, as we wrap here, what is the, you know, what permanent tax cuts have been talked about forever by Republicans? Obviously, taxes are one of those big things. What do you see as the other issues in this governor's race, either related to this budget that Walls takes care of or where Republicans have some openings? Public safety is a huge issue uh, and it's a real life issue. It's something that people are personally 
uh, experiencing or know people that have experienced, you know, crime. Um, and so, you know, how that is na navigated and dealt with um, is going to be on the table. Uh, and so I think, you know, we're going to continue to hear about that all year. I think education is another big one. Um, now, we all learned how important education is, how important teachers and schools are when our kids are in our homes trying to do this. And we all had a little window into education in a way that we didn't before. Um, but then, you know, subsequently, with some schools, you know, you know, staying closed longer or reclosing now with Omicron, um, some of the disputes with the teachers unions and, you know, fights yep. over whether or not they're going to be there. I think that education and school choice in particular is going to be uh, an issue that comes up more and at a higher rate uh, than we've seen in the past. And of course, the handling of the pandemic, um, all the various aspects of that are going to be on the table. I don't know how much interest people are going to have in actually debating it because there's a lot of fatigue, uh, right. but it's certainly ripe for conversation. For sure. Brian, I'm sure we'll talk throughout the election. Uh, Brian McClung, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. You bet. Thanks, Blaise. When we come back, Senator Paul Gazelka, he's running for governor. He's kind of the stalwart in that race. He's probably the best known in that race. How does he expect to win the Republican nomination? You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Welcome back to Sunday Take. One of our guests this week is known well to Minnesotans. Uh, he's been in the spotlight as the Senate Majority Leader the past several years. He stepped down from that post. He's still a senator, but he's running for governor. Senator Paul Gazelka, thanks for joining me right now. Boys, good to be on your show. It's a chilly week, weekend, sitting here with a cup of coffee. You've been traveling the state. What do you think is on the minds of Minnesotans right now here in January 2022? I think a lot of people are concerned about the direction we're heading, both nationally and at the state level. I mean, a, a lot of people are frustrated with our president, Biden, but in Minnesota, across the state, I've been north, south, east, west, and all of metro area, and people want their state back. There's just, uh, whether it's public safety or frustrated about education or the economy, they're looking for change. You're talking to a lot of Republican delegates seeking the Republican endorsement and nomination. Um, you know, where the base of the Republican party has shifted a few times in the last few years. But, you know, I continue to say at the core, the activists are, you know, consistently conservative. Are, is Trump a big influence? Is it just anti-Biden? Uh, what is the, what are you hearing from delegates? What did they say they want in a candidate to challenge governor walls? Well, they want somebody that they, they know is tough and will stand up for their values. So for the, the average Republican delegate, they care about the Second Amendment. They care about uh, pro-life. They want to make sure the elections are secure. I think that's a big one that they talk about a lot. Uh, you know, and so they, they, they want somebody to win. And, and so they're kind of looking at uh, a wide field of, of candidates. And I'm making the case that, look, I've had to... to uh, govern at the highest level against two Democrat governors, and I think one, and I have a business background that I still am, am involved with. And so the experience part is the, the case that I'm making, and, and then that I know how to win. I, 
the Senate Republicans under my leadership, we've now won three out of the last four times. And, and that's something that they want too. They want to know that the candidate they pick is going to win in the end. You brought up election security. This has been a national issue. It's been an issue here in Minnesota. It's been a question you've been asked. Do you believe Minnesota elections are secure and that Minnesotans should trust the process we have? I think too many people in Minnesota do not believe the elections are fair. And we have the opportunity to bring some some uh, legislation that would signal that. And so one of the things that I've been pushing for most of my time in the Senate is voter ID for voting. Uh, most states do it. And and providing a, a uh, identification for anybody that can't afford it. We don't want to alienate anybody. But I think giving everyone the assurance that the elections are fair, I think is important. And and I think the other thing that frustrates people is that there's too many voting places where there is only election judges from one from the Democrat side, where I think we all should work to make sure there's election judges from both sides of the aisle, because everybody wants to know it's fair. And it's important that we do things that uh, would send that message. Senator, it's interesting you bring up the word fair and you talk about, you know, election judges from both parties. Um because, you know, if if a kid says, you know, we lost and it wasn't fair, um, you know, a parent may look at him and say, you know, sometimes life's not fair and the the they showed up and Democrats have showed up at the polls. They've showed up as election judges. Is some of this a, a narrative that you being around Minnesota politics can say, look, Democrats have won statewide, not because of elections, but because they've appealed to voters. Because when you start to blend those two things, it it seems to me that it's almost like an excuse or, or something that Republicans continue to keep alive to motivate people or to cast doubt on election results, when in reality, you know, Republicans haven't been successful in statewide Minnesota for quite some time. Yeah, and that's why I, I focus on always the next election and, and winning. That's why I think we've won the Senate majority the last three out of the last four times, including this last election. But what I what I think the issue is going to be is not uh, not elections. I think it's going to be crime and, and public safety and that being sky high. And I talk to a lot of independents and Democrats that are very frustrated that the uh, leadership in the Repu in the Democrat Party, governor, mayors of Minneapolis and St. Paul, have not kept the streets safe. And they know that we need more police and they, they appreciate that I'm talking about being tough on crime. I think that is going to be the number one issue above all issues. And Republicans will win on that issue. My guest is Senator Paul Gazelka. He's a Republican candidate for governor. Uh, when you look at the field, you talked a little bit about what delegates are looking for. Um, is there anything about your competitors for the Republican nomination that you believe sets you apart? Um, because other candidates have gotten a lot of attention. They've built national profiles. They've brought in celebrities. They've come into the race late to a lot of buzz. What is it that makes you think you can still, you know, win the nomination, the endorsement 
against people who either raise more money, get more social media views, et cetera? Well, first of all, I think we'll be second on raising money. And since I got in the race, I think the, each of the months that I was in the race, I raised more money than anybody else. So, and that is a factor. But I think in the end, they also want to know that somebody that they're going to pick can actually govern and stand up for the principles that they believe in. And that's what my record will show, both in the private sector. I've, I've, I still have an insurance agency in the Brainerd area. So I bring business experience, but governing experience. My opponents will say, you know, that you're, you're a career politician. And I'm going, man, I was in the Senate 12 years. I don't think that's being a, a career politician, but <laughs> that's what they try to label me as. But I think experience really matters. And if you look at my last five years of, of governing as, as the leader of the Senate, I think people like how I governed. That's Republicans, but also the, the moderates and the independents that uh, we need to win. Governor Walls ran on one Minnesota. Uh, we are more divided than we ever have been before. I, you know, he's not, he's not to blame for all of the division in the country or the state. Uh, but you worked with him. You, uh, had to work with him to pass budgets and, and navigate things. Is one Minnesota possible? And what would you do differently to try to achieve more statewide unity? Well, I regularly work to bring Minnesota together, and, and Tim Walls was the most divisive leader I've seen in a long time. Uh, the fact that I could work with Speaker Hortman, the, the Democrat leader of the House, and we forged a, a budget together. We ended the governor's emergency powers against his wishes. Uh, we worked together uh, to, to get a budget that both sides would, could live with. But I think the biggest issue for Tim Walls is he grabbed emergency powers and didn't communicate to very, he communicated to very few people and just did everything on his own. There's so many examples where I'd say, Governor, I totally disagree. I disagreed when he kept kids out of school for a long period of time, forced them to wear masks, chose which businesses could be open and which could, which could be closed. Churches at one time, you can have 10 people, but bars can have 50. I mean, there was many, many decisions that frustrated not just me, but the entire state and then how he handled the riots uh, and not bringing in the National Guard uh, is unacceptable. And those are the reasons why people are, are frustrated and why we're so divided. Your critics will say that your conservative values, um, some beliefs that you've espoused uh, will be a detriment amongst suburban independent voters, specifically women, whether it's on um, gay and lesbian rights or other issues. How do you counter that knowing that young voters, uh, they don't share kind of their parents' values on uh, gay issues, lesbian issues, uh, pro-choice, pro-life, things like that? Well, I, I would say uh, just look at how I've governed the last five years and, and how I talked and how I communicated to people uh, I reach out to every community. I've been reaching out to the different minority communities throughout Minneapolis and St. Paul. I have regular conversations with all kinds of groups, including the gay community. Uh, on the Republican side, we have log cabin Republicans. That's uh, about a third of the gay community. And I listen to their input and uh, you know, I'll continue to do that. And, and the other thing I'll say is 
look, I'm 62 years old. Uh, I, like everyone, you have the opportunity to mature. And I, for me personally, I think the the biggest uh, change for me is that I'm I'm more grace filled than I was in my 20s. <laughs> and, you know, and I, and I just think, you know, it's part of just getting older. My wife and I've been married 39 years and uh, uh, just raised five kids. You know, you go through life and you learn and you just you have an opportunity to be a, a little um, a little softer. And so in those those regards, as far as listening to people different from me, uh, I think I'm ready to be a really good governor for the entire state listening to people in all walks of life. Well, I think that we all, as we age and mature, uh, if we don't find more grace and more patience, then it makes life a little miserable. That's all I would say as I, <laughs> I as I get ready to turn 50 here, Senator. Uh, as we wrap, um, you know, there'll be special interest groups. There'll be factions of the Republican Party that if, if Republicans run the table, that you're the governor, that the Republicans control the House, Republicans control the Senate, uh, that there's several things that Minnesota conservatives have wanted. Uh, What are your top three priorities if you have control of all three bodies? And can you say, you know, definitively that, you know, Texas style or Louisiana style abortion laws will not be a priority? What will be the priorities? Well, the first one is a multi-billion dollar permanent tax cut. Uh, We have, we have like a, around $10 billion of money that's laying there. And that the biggest issue in that one will be getting rid of Social Security income tax. Uh, we're one of just a handful or more that still tax that. And we have seniors leaving our state. It shouldn't be because of our tax policy. I do want to work on emergency powers, making sure no governor ever abuses those again. Uh, and then I'll say we have to have more police on the streets uh, and we have to have a better system of prosecution and, and what the judges do. So the whole public safety issue will be a big, big issue that I think all of Minnesota wants us to take care of. So those are three of the issues I'm thinking about. Regarding uh, uh, pro-life, it is possible that Roe v. Wade uh, is changed in some form. Then it becomes a state issue. And in Minnesota, for people that don't know it, we have Doe versus Gomez. We have our own version of Roe v. Wade. And so I want to influence the hearts and minds of people regarding the preciousness of life from conception to natural death. We worked on bills like a parent's right to know when their children uh, get pregnant, a a woman's right to know when when, uh, she wants to have an ultrasound, she should be able to have one. So we're going to work on issues related to that, but Doe versus Gomez is in place in Minnesota. Sarah Paul Gazelka, Thanks for joining me on Morning Take or on Sunday Take here on News Talk 830 WCCO. When we come back, a big push for bonding this week. Where's the governor? Where's the House? And where's the Senate? And how does it all work out? You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Welcome back to Sunday Take. Joining me now is Fu Lee. He is the chair of the House Capital Investment Committee. And this week, Governor Walls released his bonding package. But the thing about bonding is it can't start until Chairman Lee says, let's go. Chairman Lee, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, boys. So, um, you know, bonding has to start in the House. You've obviously been out looking at projects. You've had probably, I don't know, $127 billion worth of requests at this point. 
what's your process going to be as the House pulls together its bonding bill? Uh, thank you, Blois. So we actually, you know, have started the process earlier this uh, this fall, where we spent a total of 14 days on the road, a travel over. Uh, 2,300 miles across the state just to listen to these different critical infrastructure projects that uh, local units of government have submitted and also our state agencies. And it's not quite as large as you said, you know, 127 no, million or so. Uh, right now it's around 5.5 billion. And so as we come back on the 31st, we'll uh, make sure to start having some commi- uh, committee hearings, not only on additional uh, projects that we weren't able to take a look at, but to hear the governor's proposal in depth from the state agencies and also to hear about the federal infrastructure bill and how does that play into what we're going to do uh, this upcoming year. Let's talk about that federal infrastructure bill, because I think from my point of view, I think a lot of people will probably kind of try to understand the way those two things work together. Are there kind of principles or guidelines that you understand now about how to think of the federal infrastructure money versus state bonding requests and, and state assets that may need maintenance, et cetera? I think what's really important for us is that uh, regarding the federal infrastructure bill, we need to know the timeline and matching funds. You know, what is the timeline for when the feds are going to come out with some of these uh, guidance on what the funding could be used for? And then also which pot of money requires a matching fund from the state and which one doesn't, and also which one is uh, competitive for grants. And so those are information that we're going to figure out, hopefully, uh, in the uh, first few weeks of February with our partners from the National Conference of State Legislature and also from our state agencies. Got it. Governor Wallace came out with $2.7 billion in bonding requests. Uh, You probably had a little bit of a preview of it. Uh, was he high? Was he low? Was he just right? Where, you know, where does he stand, you know, in those numbers and those priorities with relation to the projects that you guys have looked at and the, the priorities that the house may have? Uh, you know, going back to just the number of the need that we have some, uh, received from state agencies and local units of government, it's around 5.5 billion. Okay. Right now from the uh, debt capacity report that we received from uh, Minnesota management and budget, says that we you know, have the capacity to bond for potentially 3.5 billion. And I think that uh, we need to have a robust bonding bill. I think the governor had a, a good start with his 2.7 uh, billion proposal. I myself personally would like to see us having something north of that. And so we'll okay. do the work in the next few weeks to uh, really see what can we do and put a package together. Are there any areas uh, maintenance, deferred maintenance on state facilities, higher ed facilities, um, continually comes up. And, you know, you look at higher ed and buildings and it makes sense that they would need money to fix buildings and restore old buildings. Um, but are there other areas of bonding priority that you keep hearing about that maybe, you know, it's like that roof that you haven't replaced in a while that you think, you know, people may not be aware that the, the need is really strong. So uh, big priorities for for myself and uh, several members of the committee is how do we really look at uh, capital investment through a uh, race equity lens and make sure that, you know, we uh, invest in those communities have not, that have not been invested in, whether that's, you know, into communities uh, 
providing uh, investment into you know local units of government or uh, community nonprofits that are actually serving the public. And also, uh, what I really am impressed with the administration on is you know their investment in housing. Uh, I think uh, it is critical for us to address you know um, investment into some of the assets that we have you know with regards to the tool school systems and all of that. But we need to make sure that we put more money into housing. Uh, whether that's through the housing infrastructure bonds or you know public housing uh, rehabilitation, I myself personally uh, grew up in public housing. I know the value of that and how, what what it means for uh, uh, families in Minnesota who may be struggling at that time. But you know yep. we know that this can have a meaningful impact in someone's life. My guest is Fu Li. He's the chairman of the House Bonding Capital Investment Committee. He's a DFLer. Talk about that race equity lens and public projects, because, you know, whether it's cities, counties, uh, higher ed institutions, I think that's the way people think of bonding. It goes to another public entity. There have been projects over the years, whether it's a sheet music museum or other projects that have community good or statewide uh, value. Are there examples or um, instances where you've heard of a project that really kind of makes that lens very clear for you? Uh, definitely. Uh, in the 2020 bill, I appreciate all of us coming together to put in a proposal for $30 million uh, uh, for equity projects. And one that really uh, came to mind for me was the Native American Community Clinic in South Minneapolis, where they are able to serve a population, you know, our indigenous community here in the, the Twin Cities and, yeah. you know, those throughout the region and even in, in greater Minnesota, they are coming in to receive a type of care that, you know, actually understand like some of the cultural that actually apply some cultural benefits or, you know, that understanding of what is it that's needed for our indigenous communities. Okay. And it's these type of project that we really need to make sure that uh, we take a look at and consider too, because we, we have to do the work and know that, you know, regardless of where someone lives or, you know, how, how they look like, we need to make sure that the state investment is reaching out and going to impact their lives. Uh, one of the other issues is obviously you need 60% uh, of the votes to pass bonding. And therefore, you probably need some Republican votes. Uh, and certainly you need to work with your counterpart in the Senate, uh, Senator Tom Bach. Have you guys begun any discussions on priorities, buckets, greater Minnesota, metro area, urban areas, any early kind of chatter about how to go through this process? So, Blois, when we were uh, doing our tours, we traveled throughout the state and both you know, Democratic and Republican districts. You know, we weren't really prioritizing, uh, you know, which political party you are in when we uh, made the, the track around the state, if a member make a request, we make sure that we go and visit that so that we can actually hear from the communities and what the state investment will mean for them. And now uh, we'll be heading into session and we'll be doing the same where we're going to have members, those who did not have the opportunity to present their uh, project come in before the committee so that we could have a holistic picture of uh, the different projects and the different requests and, you know, work through it as a committee to start making decisions on what should we be prioritizing as we put our budget bill together. Your Republican counterpart in the House, uh, Representative Erdahl, has put together a couple of these. And uh, what 
he's also a fun guy to work with. So uh, any good stories from your tours? Because I imagine, you know, even during a pandemic, those are probably <laughs> some of the best social occasions of uh, of the last couple of years for legislators. Uh, it, it's been fun to work with uh, Representative Dean Erdahl, you know, just picking his brain, seeking some of his advice on how to uh, put a bill together or, you know, what are some of the, of the, considerations that you know he had when he was chairing and also just to visit his hometown you know on our way to Litchfield we uh made a stop over at the uh, world largest ball of twine yeah I did not know that that exists you know and so even for me as a legislator I think it's great for us to be able to travel throughout the state and experience something so Minnesotan that many of us may not have the opportunity otherwise to to know or check out well, Representative Lee, thanks for joining Sunday Take today. And the world's largest ball of twine is a bucket list item for anybody who drives around Minnesota in Darwin, Minnesota. I, too, on my own, while driving back and forth to Wilmer, just stopped by one day to say that I had seen it and, of course, <laughs> took a selfie. So uh, maybe maybe there'll be another monument that we'll find uh, on your tours or that somebody else will want to create with bonding money. Thanks, Fu. Thank you, Blois. You're listening to Sunday Take when we come back. Uh, what else do we need to know this year? Uh, and next week, the legislative session will be underway. Redistricting is coming. And we will have heard from all four legislative caucuses about how they positioned after Governor Walz's budget came out this past week. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be a long 11 months, but we're almost one month through uh, the this big election year. If it's 9 a.m. on Sunday, you're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Coming up next, Mike Max and Pete Najarian with The Huddle. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. 